You're listening to another episode of Date with the Night, and today's guest is Lizzie Goodman, author of Meet Me in the Bathroom, an incredible book documenting the rebirth of rock and roll in New York City between 2001 and 2011. How are you today? I'm great. How are you? Good. I'm so excited to do this episode with you because Meet Me in the Bathroom is such an important work for anyone who is interested in the music and culture of the 2000s and learning more about bands and artists that influenced what we're now calling indie sleaze. Can you talk a bit about how you were personally involved in this scene and how you came to know so many of the bands and artists featured in your book? Gosh, it's always like a bit of a stumper to figure out where it all started. I would say that the beginning for me really was I moved to New York. Well, I moved to Philadelphia for college and it was kind of just a cover to get to New York. I was like, that's close, right? Philadelphia, near New York. Great. And the first summer between my freshman and sophomore years of school, I went and got a job in a restaurant in the city in New York and just kind of hung out. It was called Pershing Square. And there was a bunch of us, but there was maybe, I don't know, a handful. And this other kid was there training to work. It was a pretty sweet deal. You just kind of got paid to show up and they would feed you and it was, you know, there was no actual work yet because the construction on the the place was taking too long. And so we all just like hung out all summer. And that person was Nick Valenti, who was at the time already like in this band with his friends called The Strokes. And he was just my summer friend. We would like hang out and smoke weed after we got let out of this weird sort of school slash job that we had both somehow scored. And uh, he would tell me about his band. And I was already super obsessed with the city, with everything about the city, with music, culture, with art, with, you know, film, everything to do with the sort of idea and myth of New York was already my jam. So it was sort of like meeting a fellow traveler, like somebody else who was in love with the idea of the city and the idea of the self that you can sort of create only in New York. So knowing Nick, obviously, like, as the Strokes started to play more, I kind of would just, they would come down to Philly, and I would go see them, and I would come up to the city and see them. And through them, I met, like, all the other bands of that era, you know, Longwave and The Realistics and The Strokes and Moldy Peaches. Those are all bands that I just sort of, like, saw all the time. It felt separate in this important way from the real world of music, you know? Like, there were rock stars like Bjork or, you know, Kurt Cobain or something. And then there were fellow kids, these, uh, your friends who were in these bands. And it it really did feel like this kind of different realm and a very rich one, but one that would never, it was sort of like just for you and your friends. And of course it was never going to go anywhere. It just felt like completely unrelated to the idea of anything that other people would ever find out about. That was my entry point, really. Thanks, Nick, uh, for, (laughs) yeah. I think you mentioned in Meet Me in the Bathroom that he would cheat off of your wine tasting test, was it? Yeah, dude, I wasn't going to like re-out him on that one, but I don't think he'd mind. Yeah, he, we, I was a very sort of dutiful, good kid student. And, you know, we were at this like ridiculous job where these people had clearly messed up and couldn't get their restaurant opened on time and they had already hired a staff. And so we were just like, they're being paid to sort of do wine tasting. So they had to figure out something to do with us. And so they would, yeah, like test us on the menu. And in retrospect, it's just hilarious. Like I took it so seriously. I was like, yeah, we really need to, you know, hit the books to prepare for these. I mean, and Nick, of course, being, you know, like 25 at the age of 12 was like, uh, you're hilarious and sort of thought I was, I I mean, my sense is that he thought I was pretty funny for being so square and like serious about the whole thing. But also, since I knew all the answers and my paper was right there, I was like, hey, can you hook me up with, you know, whatever we're supposed to be writing down about this grape? Um, So yeah. Yeah, those are the little parts throughout the book that I absolutely love. And there's this part of the book that describes the state of rock music before the strokes. And it's described as a bit buttoned up or reserved. Mm. And Mm -hmm. there's this quote, fun and sex were two things that were very much frowned upon in the indie world. Dance music for us seemed to be this thing that we could have fun doing. We could DJ and have parties where you actually played music that you liked. Mm. Why was indie music at this time or rock music kind of void of fun? The question always at the core of 
this part of this conversation is always nobody knows. Like there are these cycles, these sort of like currents in the ocean of culture that repeat. Mm -hmm. Does it have to do with generations coming of age into like actual adulthood? Like the people who are my age, who are in our like early twenties at this time are now like in our early forties and in new positions of sort of rising power in TV and in all the like cultural places that you would go if you were interested in this, like the people there, a lot of them are now us, um, Mm -hmm. which is really funny and (laughs) alarming on a number of levels. But um, so maybe it's that, you know, like, I don't know, but I would say that the nineties in New York and I wasn't there. I mean, I was a little younger, so I didn't, I missed it a bit, but it was stark and, Drony and like I'm thinking about this Nick Sinner quote that's somewhere in the book where he to paraphrase says something like everyone is very dark and serious and into heroin mm-hmm. it was not bright it was not fun it was not about like play and celebration and sexuality which is a, is something that you're asking about here and that certainly Karen O I really think of her as this kind of zany angel who descended and was like this is supposed to be fun and the strokes have this too of course this sort of sense of the energy of youth and sex as intertwined forces for kind of danger and self-discovery. And music culture generally felt quite played out at the end of the 90s, at least in terms of rock and roll. Everybody in in the quote-unquote business was like, yeah, that leather jacket rock thing is so passe. That's never coming back. We're not doing that anymore. We're doing like the prodigy is the future. It's going to be about electronic music. And that's not what happened. But that was definitely the way trends were going. It was like rock bands are over. Grunge is the last era of that. Like we don't play guitars anymore. And we don't certainly nothing like punk. Mm -hmm. No three minute songs where you're preening and wearing eyeliner is ever coming back. Absolutely not. Yeah, there was almost this expectation that dance music from the UK was going to come to America and that was going to be the next big thing. And that almost seemed to encourage a lot of the artists throughout this book to make rock music danceable, to make it something to kind of lose your shit to, in a sense. (laughs) Before the 2000s, it was a lot of the cool bands were coming from outside of New York. This is also mentioned in your book, like Seattle and Portland, and there was Mm -hmm. a Britpop obsession. And it mentions how no one cared for local New York bands, and they were actually kind of seen as uncool. But through all this music that these artists created, it really brought everyone's attention back to New York. Post 9-11 especially, it felt like people were very sympathetic towards the people of the city. And actually, a lot of people wanted to come to New York and they wanted to celebrate it in a sense. Do you think this kind of ties into how this pandemic has affected us and this potential renewal and obsession with New York? I hope so. I mostly think only good can come from people being obsessed with New York because <laughs> it's yeah. a, it's sort of like a a magic mirror. You know, it's the book starts with this idea of the myth of the city. You can go there, you can go out and meet other people who are like minded, and it's it's all happening in real life. It's not like some Web three conjuring, <laughs> but it is also an idea. There's a lot of bands in Meet Me in the Bathroom that aren't from New York. I mean, lots. And when I was sort of assembling it, I was thinking about well, really there's a difference between New York bands and bands from New York. The Kings of Leon had a sense of New Yorkness. There was this sort of sense of that myth that we associate with New York being an animating force for them and coming to the city meant something to them. So I think about that a lot. I think about the power of that idea, even in times when the city itself doesn't feel like it's the hub of its own myth, if that makes sense. Like, yeah, the myth of New York might not be happening in New York right now. Like, I don't really know. I mean, I'm not there at the moment. I go a lot, but I don't live there anymore. And I'm also too old. I think of it as kind of a live nerve ending. I don't have access to that anymore. And nor should I, that would be kind of deranged. I hope that the sense of the place as what it can unlock in you, the sort of collective you I know that will always be alive. And I hope that I think it's exciting when that becomes something that people are like pulling at again. I think that's good for culture. I think it's good for our society. I think it's it's a really beautiful and pure animating energy that changed my life. That is still what I wake up feeling connected to every day. I've been thinking about this a lot because I'm working on an adaptation of Meet Me in the Bathroom for a scripted TV series. And so we've been 
kind of considering the connections between like why this time is remains so rich to us, mm-hmm. like why we're still so interested in it. And I think obviously nobody saw a global pandemic coming. Nobody saw Donald Trump coming. Nobody saw like the beginning of World War Three coming. Those are all like absurdly tectonic altering rising events or depending on which one we're talking about, like <laughs> rising or yeah. falling in this particular moment. But there's a sense that we're living through right now of, you know, historic rupture in our trust of institutions, in our sense of what the world we're waking up to into every day, what the rules of that world are. In what is crazily a much smaller sense, that is what this time was about. I mean, it was the turn of one century into another. It was the end of 20th century identity and the beginning of whatever the 21st century was going to be. I mean, Y2K was a real thing. It was like, all the computers are going to shut down. You're not going to be able to use your credit cards anymore. Like the global financial markets are going to end. I mean, it was really like an explicit, real, I guess, more sort of like experiential allegory for the fear of what was coming. This generation that I'm a part of and that the book covers is a bunch of people who are like 18, 19, 20, 21 when that's happening. And that's a part of time in your life where you're trying to figure out like, what is like, the very beginnings of growing up going to look like for me? And what is this world going to be like? There's just a lot of fear and anxiety. And then 9-11 happens. The book really tries to capture and the show that we're working on really tries to capture this sense of chronic agitation and instability and the way that that was both incredibly traumatic and also totally energizing because it felt like all of the old rules and ways of doing things were over. As I say that, it's like, yeah, uh uh-huh. Every generation feels that way. Like, cute. That's what the 60s were about. That's what Mm -hmm. the 70s were about. But, you know, this era has a special claim to that because of the technological revolution, globalization, all these words that are kind of annoying to even bring up, but are definitely a part of it. It's a very long-winded way of saying I do see some ties between kind of this era as almost like a prelude to what we're living through now, at least psychologically. Yeah, I loved everything you said, and especially that part about how the technology really also affected this time. And post 9-11, people were anxious. And because of the Y2K issue. Like I remember my mom going out and buying bottled water and kind of keeping a (laughs) stock of it just in case we needed it. So it was this bizarre sort of agitation that you described that even I felt as a kid. There's also this talk of how everyone was downloading music on Napster and people were sharing MP3s to their blogs and the blogs had this voice and command within pop culture that was never seen before. So it was this perfect mix of technology and world events and then just this new time in New York that really created this very, very unique era. It was the first generation really to kind of grow up online and come of age with the internet. So I think that really also affected how a lot of the things were unfolding in the city and how bands even made it. In your book, you say there was not a Brooklyn identity yet. Brooklyn just felt newer and it made it easier for people to kind of pave over Brooklyn's history. Mm -hmm. What are the differences between how Manhattan and Brooklyn responded to this gentrification happening in the city? God, I'm sure there's like dissertations being written about that right now. I think I can only speak to, you know, sort of what I witnessed. There's a funny story that's coming to mind. I'll just tell it. My editor at New York Magazine and then at the Times Magazine is this guy, Hugo Lindgren, who's the best. And he used to tease me. He would be like, you're like the last rock girl in Manhattan because I never moved to Brooklyn. I'm not anti-Brooklyn, but I'm like the New York in my mind that I fantasized about as a girl is Manhattan and I'm into Manhattan and that's what I do. I'm a Manhattan person, which is of course at this point absurd. In 2002, you'd go to Paris and there would be tourist kiosks selling, you know, I Heart New York t-shirts or like New York City sweatshirts because that brand of the city is global in that sense, or at least all the way to Europe and and beyond. And, you know, five years later, it would say Brooklyn. It became the brand of the very thing that we're talking about. The story I was going to tell is that I once was at a show in the later 2000s. I don't even know where I was in Brooklyn, maybe Warsaw. And I was with some friends and we were getting in a cat. We were all, we'd all had quite a bit to drink and we were all like going home. 
And it was just like me and this guy left in this car after they dropped everyone off. And like, we had just met and we sort of hit it off and it was sort of like, Ooh, like, is this a new thing? Like whatever. And I was like, I'm going to go home. And he was like getting my number and stuff. And he goes, okay, well the cab should drop you off. We were in Williamsburg. And I was like, Oh, well actually I'm, I live in the city. And he just looked at, he goes, you live in Manhattan? I mean, it was hysterical. And what's so funny about it, I mean, it's funny on a number of levels, but one of the reasons that it's so funny is that like six years before that, you couldn't get cabs to go to Brooklyn. Like you'd get in the car and you'd say, hey, take me to, you know, North Six in Bedford, like the hub. And they would be like, get out. (laughs) They would like ask you to get out of the car. So the people who actually understand urban history and urban planning will tell you like what zoning orders have to do with this. And you go back to like Jane Jacobs and stuff like the protection of Greenwich Village and the idea of how the city itself. And by that, I mean, the broader New York City and all the boroughs, like these are really just like a bunch of towns that have a whole bunch of like political reasons that development happens the way the development happens. And I do not know enough about what happened in Brooklyn to be able to answer that. I just know what I experienced. And, you know, the Lower East Side still looks like the Lower East Side. And Brooklyn, Williamsburg is a, you know, mall, a mall that worships the, what's the word I'm looking for? The kind of distilled and then like, watered down is a not very nice way of putting it. I don't really even mean to criticize it, but it's a mall that serves the commercial arm of the ideas that are covered in Meet Me in the Bathroom. Mm -hmm. I just saw my friend Dave Siddick of TV on the radio and, and many other things out in LA like a few days ago. I was interviewing him for this podcast I've actually been making called Difficult Artist, which is about interviews about creative process. Oh, I love that. Dave is yeah, it's cool. It's fun. He brought up that his studio, his old studio in Brooklyn, he was he never lived in Manhattan. He moved to Brooklyn like in the late 90s. So he really saw it and was a part of it and in some ways defined the idea of Williamsburg that now exists and he said his studio is a J crew. Yeah. <laughs> we were just And it it wasn't like, "Oh, isn't that awful?" It's just like we were both just laughing. It's like that's so funny. I mean, how hilarious is that? So, that tells you everything you need to know, I think. Yeah, it almost came around this time it appeared in the book when there was this change in bands that were coming up like TV on the radio, for instance, or MGMT and Vampire Weekend. They talk about how in, I think it was maybe 2007 or 2008, you couldn't smoke inside anymore. That was no longer Mm -hmm. legal. And they were IDing people more seriously. And There were a lot of changes in that regard, and it seemed like these other bands coming up had less of that angst-ridden, sex-driven, debaucherous kind of vibe. They had a collegiate sort of Mm -hmm. vibe, like a more responsible (laughs) (laughs) sense to them. And there's funny quotes from members of TV on the radio, and I forget, I can't recall who said this exactly, but they talked about how they were kind of jealous of Interpol because they had all these like wild stories, and it would seem like trouble would find them, but... For them, it was like they would have people come up to them at the show and be like, hey, me and my girlfriend really like your band. Want to go for a coffee afterwards? Like this very kind of not so party centric vibe. I think that's Jaleel from TV on the radio, who, by the way, is like one of the best looking men you've ever seen in your life. So it's just like, Jaleel, I feel like you did fine. But yes, the national TV on the radio and Interpol happened to be in a rehearsal, like a building that had a bunch of rehearsal spaces in it that was like right next to Vice. Was it the Halsey building? Maybe. It was like right next to where Vice used to be. I guess kind of now still is. They're everywhere uh, in Williamsburg. And they would, yeah, there's sort of this sense of, man, yeah, we missed the window where they were just going to be like girls throwing panties at us on stage. and stuff. Yeah. Like <laughs> uh, but I'm just saying all those guys, I think, made out just fine in all of the areas that you associate with the cliches of rock and roll. So we won't feel too sorry for them. But yes, sorry, I interrupted you. I'm sure there was something you were actually asking me in there. And I just I called it up. I actually was going to ask you about this podcast you're starting because in Meet Me in the Bathroom, you actually read so much about the different kinds of work ethic and behavior of these artists. And you have James Murphy of LCD Sound System, like he has a very particular way of working. It's very much his way or the highway in a sense. He's, he's so amazing <laughs> yeah. and I really admire him. But yeah, he sounds like someone that really knows what he wants and he kind of has a hard time steering away from that. So I'd like to hear more about this podcast sure. that you're producing. So who are you going to be speaking with? 
That's really funny about James. I give James so much credit for knowing himself as well as he does. Like he tells this story, meet me in the bathroom about like finding an old tape of him rehearsing with his band when he was like in eighth grade or something. And they're just having fun. They're supposed to be, you know, it's just like a kid's garage band or something. And he's like, do it again. We have to do it again. Like he's very sort of militantly like bossing these like 12 year old boys around. It's so funny. So Yes, the podcast, Difficult Artist, I made a season of it. We made it last year and we did 20 episodes. I mean, I know the trick to podcasting is that you're really supposed to do it every week. And I probably will try to do that at some point. And maybe this season, once I get a few episodes banked, I might just try to like just keep going. But for me, it's like where I'm putting my energy that I used to put full time to journalism. Like, yeah. It's not that I'm not doing journalism anymore, but the idea of writing like big magazine features, which is really the hardest and the most rewarding thing that I do in my entire creative life. It's harder and harder to make that work on a number of levels. And I've done it for a long time. So what I really love doing is talking to people about how they make what they make. And so the idea came when I noticed that one of my sort of tactics with interviewing, and maybe you you can relate to this too, is If you're interviewing somebody who's, especially somebody who's like done a lot of interviews, like somebody famous who's talked about their album before, talked about, like it's sort of, there's a kind of rote quality sometimes to the answers and Mm -hmm. you don't want that. You want like something that feels like you've tapped a, a kind of live vein that's actually pumping. Even when people aren't trying to be obstinate, it's just like you've talked about it a lot. So like, how do you get fresh stuff? One of the things that I would often do is just sort of stop asking normal questions and ask somebody like, if it's a musician, what time of day did you go to the studio? Or what food did you guys order? Do you remember where you were ordering from? In Meet Me in the Bathroom, there's a lot of examples of this. There are a lot of quotes that come as a result of this. Like, (laughs) there's this whole debate between the members of Interpol about who wears suits and who doesn't and like who wore them first on stage. And there's stuff about this with the strokes too, where it's like, everyone says that Albert's style really influenced them. And then I think Albert's like, no, I didn't wear a suit to the first rehearsal. It's just hilarious. Those quotes are all a reaction to this type of questioning where it's just like, okay, blah, blah, blah about like the making of the songs. Not that that's not interesting, but it's kind of hard to get at it from here in the way that actually makes you the reader or us, the listeners in the case of a podcast actually have an emotional relationship with what this person is trying to tell you. And so that idea of like taking it to a kind of really granular experiential sound, sight, smell, taste, touch type of place is what the podcast is about. So every episode starts with the same question, which is like, tell me where you go every day. Mm. Like, what is your routine? Like, do you get fully dressed? Do you wear pants to the office? Like, how do you build the sort of atmosphere that is required to do this thing, which no matter what kind of work you do creatively, if it's writing or making music or film or whatever, like there's a kind of weird conjuring that comes like there's a blank page in there somewhere. And there's all these rituals that people have around coping with the kind of terror and horror of that blank page. And that is what I'm interested in. Because once you get into that, of course, you end up talking about somebody's childhood, like it'll come, it just goes to that. So I've interviewed Maggie Rogers, Trent Reznor, Lori Anderson. I'm really trying to keep it obviously somewhat musician specific given my background, but I also spoke to Floria Sigismondi, who's like an amazing filmmaker and music video director. Edgar Wright was on it. He was my final episode. There's been a bunch of really cool artists of different stripes. And then next season, hopefully I'll be able to do the same, but I just started recording new interviews for it. As you know, it takes time. Yeah. So that's that. You're very talented at that, getting those really cool details and stories that maybe someone else might not get. Like a lot of praise I see for this book is that you ask all these very interesting questions that lead to all these really amazing tidbits of information that people who love these musicians and artists are dying for. Like that's what we (laughs) spend hours going through the internet and reading interviews to find out these little details to know more about the bands and artists that we love. And it's interesting that you talk about this sort of association with like how you used to do a lot of writing for publications and now you're Mm -hmm. moving into a podcast. And I hear a lot these days of people talking about how podcasts are the new blogs in Hmm. a sense. Yeah, I see that. Yep. 
that they're this sort of indie media format that kind of harkens back to the blog era. Mm -hmm. And it was such a big part of your book, talking about blogs and the kind of impact that that had on the music industry, as well as music sharing and how people were consuming music. What blogs did you visit regularly during this time? Did you spend a lot of time on blogs? Yes, podcasts and blogs have a ton in common because it's a way of expressing personal curiosity that is journalistic, but is not journalism. Mm -hmm. Accessing this sort of traditional media structure in music journalism was fucking hard. And it was full of mostly white dudes. And the general tone was very much like you were sort of wrong until you prove yourself right. And that rightness could be lost every day. Like even if you could play in that pool, which I, of course, being like such a good little student, literally used to read rock encyclopedias. Mm -hmm. Like I did my homework literally so that I could kind of fit in, but it was only one flavor of how to talk about an experience. Like it wasn't, to me, it was not, and to many of us, there was not a lot of room for joy, fun, play, sex, looseness. Like, I mean, we worshiped the enemy because they could just write whatever they wanted. That sense of irreverence, that sense of punching air holes in how these things were being written and talked about. I mean, when I worked at Rolling Stone, we would have these like interminable meetings about the top five guitarists and the magazine was going to do a top five guitarist list. And it was just like these debates and everyone was very serious about it. And of course the top guitarists were like Jimi Hendrix and Eric Clapton. And like, that's yeah. what we were doing. Like I could get it together to have an opinion about that and I could argue and defend it, but I gotten into rock and roll to get away, James Murphy says this, I got into rock and roll to get away from rules. And then you get into indie rock culture and there's just so many rules. And I had come from an academic background. My parents are both academic. They met in grad school. Like that was the other way of life that was sort of presented to me as an option and that I was interested in. I mean, I was really good at all that stuff and I just didn't want to do it. I wanted to let experience lead my creative life and not the other way around. I didn't want like whatever my writing was to be the thing that then told me what my experiences would be like. And that is what blogging was about. It was like, okay, we're just going to put whatever we want. I mean, my friend, Laura, Miss Modern Age, which is one of the blogs that I read religiously, <laughs> would just be obsessed with Jack White for like months. And then it would just be 100% like photos of, okay, maybe not 100%. Sorry, Laura, but like a lot of Jack White. And it was just like, this is what she's interested in. And this is what she's going to write about. And the thing that drove it was passion mm -hmm. and a sense of like, again, that live wire nerve ending of there's a person at the other end of this who's just psyched and she's taking photos at every show and then writing about what that show is like. And it's all coming from this place of what is supposed to be, to me, the animating force of all of this, which we've been talking about already, which is a sense of joy, self-discovery, like living nostalgia, like really just leaning into all that. And that the energy of that kind of writing really did come from blogs during this period of time. I also read I mean, I would be crazy if I didn't mention the most obvious one, which it's funny, I haven't even said it yet, but it's my best friend, Sarah Lewitton's blog. Yes. Sarah's so boring ever since she stopped drinking is what it was yes. called. And I don't know if people know the origin story for this, but she worked at Spin at the time. And we had a big 4th of July party on our roof deck. And Sarah is both like one of the most sort of punk rock people you'll ever meet and a total like neat freak. Like she likes cleaning products, this girl. So it was a daytime party and the sun was sort of setting and everyone was going home and she was really wasted and trying to clean up. What I can remember is Sarah in this sort of tutu party dress thing that she had made herself, which was very standard for her. It was kind of falling off and she's like walking around on the roof with no shoes on and there's all this glass everywhere and she's like trying to pick up all that. And basically she like cut herself and her brother, at least one brother was there and was just like, we need to stage an intervention. And they sort of talked to her about it and she was like, okay, okay, I'll stop drinking for I think it was a month. And then she started this blog in order to deal with it the fallout. And to let her brothers know she was okay. Totally. A kind of daily report, the Instagram of the era of like, see proof of life. Here I am typing and I'm fine. And, you know, I mean, Sarah is the first person who told me about My Chemical Romance. Sarah is the first person who told me about The Killers. There's so many others. I mean, Stella Starr, who was like a really big band to all of us back then, 
the funniest one is that Sarah was obsessed with Muse. She would bring them up in meetings at Span and just be laughed out of the room. And then, I don't know, 18 months later, they like broke in America. It was uncanny. And all that writing was going on on her blog. She was just saying, this is what I'm going to see this weekend. And this is what I'm excited about. And you started to see Miss Modern Age, Sarah's blog, Audrey Melody Nelson, Jason Gordon, Product Shop NYC. I mean, obviously Stereo Gum, which is now like a media empire, but Scott was a blogger to us. And the craziest thing was when you realized, again, this parallels the lives of the bands. Like you think they're small and they belong to you and they're just these kids no one else will ever know about. And then suddenly you start, we really started to see as the scene took off a little bit that this writing that was getting done or photos like Laura's photos would appear at NME. Like people would just poach it from the UK. And that's because these were like boots on the ground journalists documenting every Interpol show at a time when you could not get Rolling Stone or Spin or, you know, those, those are really the options to write about these bands yet. Like they did eventually, but it took a moment. And in the mm-hmm. meantime, the UK was just sort of cannibalizing all these bloggers writing and like putting it right into their magazine, <laughs> which is bold on their part. Yeah, Sarah Luton describes in the early days of blogging that it was fun because it was so stupid, raw and bizarre and human. And that's what I really liked about it. And kind of like you had mentioned that you were studying these rockopedia, like making sure that you (laughs) knew all this information so that you could talk about these things. Like I remember applying for a job when I was 14 at like this used record and cassette shop and they gave me a 10 page test on oh. bands and music and like what years things came out. And I was like, For I'm real? failing this test. Yeah, <laughs> oh I didn't God. get the job, but they kept asking me like, why do you want to work here instead of a clothing store? Oh. It was this gatekeeping that felt very hard to kind of edge your way in there or be taken seriously or that you had to have this like encyclopedia in your head of all these facts about the different artists you love and what year they came out with this and what inspired and besides this and besides that and yes. like who actually listens to music this way anyway it's yeah exactly and so these bloggers were like an interesting mix of fan reporter and it provided this avenue where i was inspired by all these young women who kind of had a voice for the first time in a male dominated mm-hmm. critic world And that was something I just loved so much about it. Do you feel that women sometimes don't get enough credit for their importance and the role that they played in how some of the music came to be of this era, not just within blogging and music criticism? I mean, yeah. The following is so true that it becomes tedious for us all to talk about. It's like, Women don't get enough credit for all of the things when it comes to this world. And I don't even just mean the meet me in the bathroom world. I mean the world of music culture generally. It's definitely better now than it was then. But here's what I can like accurately speak to. I mentioned that I'm trying to adapt meet me in the bathroom to a scripted series. This is really on my mind. So I keep bringing it up because I've been working on it like literally today. Oh, I love it. I love hearing about it. Okay, good. There's a showrunner that I'm working with and she and I are just like in the trenches together, kind of pulling at the threads of all the different themes that you and I are talking about in Meet Me in the Bathroom and many others. And what of those really belong in kind of like a narrative show and what threads do you pull and why and how do you build a TV series around them? And one of the things we keep returning to is exactly this topic, this area that you're addressing or bringing up, which is young women fans. But a lot of the time we're talking about young women, they are the engine of every great rock scene. I mean, Mm -hmm. maybe there's some sexism that goes into this too, about the way young men are told they're allowed to express enthusiasm. I mean, I think, you know, these issues that we're all untangling right now, painfully and awkwardly and imperfectly, as it may be in our culture about gender and how we assign roles based on gender and what that looks like and how do we free ourselves of a lot of that. I mean, it's complicated and it cuts in many different ways, but young women are allowed by our culture to be excited and joyful. And, you know, you think of the images of girls crying at the Beatles and it's this safe space for women to express feeling and to express to some extent sexuality, like Mm -hmm. crushes and being into boys. I mean, Elvis was literally dangerous, people thought, because of what he was unleashing in these women. You know, these girls shouldn't be feeling this way. It's like, no, this is like a safe place to put that. And the Beatles were an incredibly safe place to put that. 
this is how far back it goes to the sort of very beginning of modern pop culture in terms of music culture, Beatles versus the Stones and girls dressing up and going to see them and waiting outside of their hotel rooms and buses and just this sense of this music. I mean, I'm thinking about Almost Famous now too, which I maintain is one of the best movies, maybe the best fictional movie ever made about what it's actually like to be in the music scene. And what's great about that film is that it's about fans. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's not like the band is this supporting character to Firuza Balk sitting there going, do you have any idea what it's like, you know, to love this piece of music so much? I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but the way that she delivers those lines is so right. To have this piece of music means so much to you that it defines your life. And then to have the freedom to be able to go and like serve it in that way. Mm-hmm. In my time, this is what young women did. I mean, it was girls, girls at these shows. And there were dudes there too, for sure. Mm-hmm. Lots of them, importantly. But they're also there to hang out with the girls. It's like, hey, all the girls we know are into Interpol. So we're going to start going to Interpol shows like for sure, because that's where everybody's going to be. And that is what I've been thinking about narratively right now, like really leaning into that idea of kind of the passion and enthusiasm and willfully unintellectualized, pure love, joy, feeling, you know, you're crying, you're laughing, you feel like you're in love with this music, with these people who make it like to go there and to be made to feel that way is like what you come to New York for, or at least it's what I came to New York for. And it's what I'm most interested in exploring both in Meet Me in the Bathroom to some extent, and certainly now with the creative projects I'm doing now. Yeah. Karen O, there's a part in the book where she describes meeting Debbie Harry and talking about how she really looked up to her and kind of asked her some advice, you know, as being the front woman in an all-male band and being around mostly men and not really having too many female companions around her. Debbie Harry responds, enjoy it while it lasts. And it's kind of this (laughs) gut-wrenching part of the book. You know, you are living in this very special moment, but at the same time, it sounded like Karen O had some loneliness as well in that Mm. sense throughout touring. But she's such an exceptional artist. And I just even love all the parts in your book about Christian Joy, who designed all of Karen O's outfits. And Christian would come up with all of these crazy ideas, and Karen O says they would even fall apart sometimes on stage, but Karen really just went for it and committed to the look and really held her own. So she was just a huge, huge inspiration for me growing up. Seeing her, I think, inspired a lot of just even young women to play guitar, you know, learn Mm -hmm. an instrument and join a band. There was so much of this great stuff going on and so much to be inspired by, And even you have this kind of back and forth with Interpol fans and the Strokes fans. There's this sort of rivalry that didn't really exist between the bands themselves, but more between the fans. Do you have... Like, is are you Team Strokes or are you Team Interpol? Yeah, you got to just ask it, right? Like, yeah. just get it out there. So back in the day, I was definitely Team Strokes. Sorry, guys. Sorry, Interpol. <laughs> I met Nick in 1999. I just finished my first year of college. So I didn't move to New York until 2002. I mean, I did see the AES. I did see Interpol during that time. But I was in very early with the Strokes. And I can't even describe, really, this sort of wonder of having this friend, a particularly cool and unusual friend for sure was Nick, but like, it was crazy when he and his band made this music that meant so much to me, you know, like it was really extraordinary to have that experience of having these songs that really did seem like outside of even them. Mm -hmm. Albert talks about this. There's this incredible quote that I think about all the time where he talks about looking back at photos of the band from that time and thinking, I want to be in that band. And it's like he was in that, but that is him. That is really an interesting metaphorical statement that really says a lot about what it felt like to live through that time for a lot of people. You know, like Nick was this guy who cheated off me in a wine test. And then it was like, (laughs) oh my God, you're so good. But also it wasn't even like, oh, now I worship you. It was more like, isn't it amazing that you guys have made this thing that we all care about so much? And that's kind of how it felt to be around them then. It was, they were like, can you believe this is happening? I mean, it was really cute. And so I was around them and that was kind of my team. 
But Sarah, who, as I mentioned, was my roommate and my like partner in crime during this era, Sarah was like true blue Interpol. I don't know what she would tell you her opinion about the strokes are. You should interview her. She's yeah, I'd love to. like, I am super boring by comparison to Sarah. She's really like the most exciting person to talk to ever. She was super into Interpol from the jump and obsessed with them. And so I went to a lot of Interpol shows with her and I liked them a lot, but it wasn't like in that true blue, like Stones versus the Beatles kind of way, going way back. Like I will have to declare I was a Strokes girl back in the day. <laughs> Is this it? That album, their first album yep. and Interpol's Turn on the Bright Lights. Ugh. Those are both really great albums. It's hard to even pick one because I think it's almost even an unfair thing that <laughs> to even well, ask you, but I've asked <laughs> it anyways, just because it makes for a fun question. But The Strokes, Is This It? You can listen to it at any time. And it's very much a timeless album. And Turn On The Bright Lights, though, it's just so good, but it's more dramatic. It's definitely yeah. a little bit darker. So yep. I think they can both <laughs> exist so cohesively. So but you don't have a favorite. You don't have a dog in this fight. I think overall it would be The Strokes for me too, just because <laughs> I really did listen to Is This It over and over and over again. But when I listen to Turn On The Bright Lights, it's just, oh, the mixing of that album too. It's just hard <laughs> to pick one or the other. But We're yeah. so lucky. We're so lucky, you know? <laughs> we are. We're lucky we have all this access to all these different kinds of bands and music and artists. There was this difference between... The first album, Is This It? And then Room on Fire. There was a lot of almost contention and a little bit of inner turmoil that the band seemed to be going through. It's funny because the strokes were always seen as cool because they didn't seem like they were trying too hard, <laughs> but they very much did care about what their fans thought and how their music would be received. Why do you think they had such worry over the release of their second album? First of all, let's just state for the record that that album is amazing. I mean, yeah. Room on Fire is so good. And when it came out, I thought they've done the impossible thing. They've made a follow-up that like builds on the promise of Is This It, which is a perfect record. It follows logically on the path that Is This It begins. But it's also an evolution. I just thought it was incredible. And I think there was the following like difficulty that they had to face that all artists who like break the mold and then others follow in their footsteps have to face and by following their footsteps just so that nobody gets like all worked up about this i'm not saying that like all these other bands are sort of strokes imitators quite the opposite what happened is they broke as we were talking about before there was this idea that like dance music was going to be the new thing and we weren't interested in rock bands anymore and the bands that we're talking about in this like sort of meet me in the bathroom ecosystem a lot of them were existed even before the strokes existed or certainly contemporaneous to them. And they are their own thing. And they had their identity before that, all these other bands, but no one cared. You could not get signed. No one was paying attention. The, when the strokes broke, it like opened the dam for everyone else. So that's what I mean by like, they were first and now everyone's looking for their strokes. I'm quoting Mark Spitz here, paraphrasing him from the book where he's like, the funny part is it's not the strokes versus Interpol. It's the strokes and Interpol versus Hoobastank, you know, or yeah. Limp Biscuit. I mean, there was a lot of shitty, shitty rock and roll being made and popularized and selling tons of albums. I mean, Mark McGrath, was a rock star to people like it's bananas. So the rapture has in common or Interpol has in common with the strokes, this idea of a core sense of aesthetic values, not a sense of shared sound or even look necessarily. So that's what people are talking about. You know, it's like, that's what happened. But when you're first out of the gate, you're also the first to be torn down. So like all the pressure is on you. They were first. So they got to be first and then they also had to go first, you know, so mm -hmm. there was no cover for them. The expectations for that second record were sky high and I think they delivered. I think if the Strokes had released Room on Fire third, like if First Impressions of Earth, which is a kind of much more like classic second album-y in that it's more exploratory, more experimental, less like a logical next step to their debut. And that happens a lot with bands on their second album if their first album comes out of the gate and is huge. It's like, ah, panic, let's make something weird and kind of just not like what we just made. I think if First Impressions had come out second and Room on Fire came out third, it would have been hailed as this return to form. It's a more robust, like 
meatier, but still strokesy sounding like this is what we want from them. Like, I really think that. So unfortunately, that's just sort of a timing thing. In terms of their inner turmoil, I mean, it's all in the book. Yeah, yeah. It's fun to be 22 and become famous with your best friends. And it's also a recipe for a lot of complications. Um, Especially if you're a Pisces. <laughs> I mean, sure. Okay. Yeah. I'll take your word for that one. I love some Pisces. I I, um, I do. I love them as well. Our co-producer of the pod is a Pisces. But, okay, you know, cool. They're, they're very <laughs> uh, manipulated by <laughs> earthly delights, let's, uh-huh. let's just say. Subject so. <laughs> to the whims of pleasure If and you all believe that. in that. If you believe in that. <laughs> So it is interesting what you say about the order of the albums, because when Room on Fire came out, people were like, it sounds too much like their first album. Like that was some of the complaint about Mm -hmm. that one that they faced from critics. But then with First Impressions of Earth, they were like, it sounds too different. Like people just like they couldn't please them. And I think that's really interesting what you had to say about if they had switched the order around, it may have, you know, the resulting critics and the reviews might have been a bit different. But I, of course, love Room on Fire and I love First Impressions of Earth. I love all their albums, really. But do you ever wonder what Room on Fire might have sounded like if they had gone with Nigel Godric, who, yes. who did a lot of like the Radiohead albums? I think if you're a Strokes nerd or even just a fan of this time, like those are some of the great unreleased stuff that we'd all like to take a listen to. On my list would be the DFA Britney Spears collaborations, which I will say I've actually heard. There's this story in the book where she comes into the studio and eats all the icing off of a bunch of Magnolia Bakery cupcakes and then goes home. And meanwhile, I'm like, sure, that seems like the way to roll if you're a Britney in, I don't know, 2006 or something. That would be up there. And I think, yeah, the Nigel Strokes collaboration is something, you know, I, I sort of stand by what I said. Like, I did not agree at the time and I don't agree now that it's somehow a kind of carbon copy of is this it they really feel different to me in the sense of being part of the same conversation that a band is having with itself and its fans and the world around it it's a sexy emotional all the things we were talking about before like it has all of those things but it's evolved. I love it. So it's hard for me to ever say like a different version of this would have been better. But yeah, I mean, I'd die to hear those tapes, you know, of course. Yeah, even just Reptilia, which was the single off that album, it sounded different to me. I didn't really understand those criticisms. I love that album so much. I love every song from front to back. So same. why did you pick Meet Me in the Bathroom as the title for this <laughs> for this book? Well, I have to give credit where credit is due. My ex and dear friend, Mark Spitz, to whom the book is dedicated, we were drinking at Radio Bar in the West Village one day, as we often were, after a day of writing. And I used to meet him there all the time and lots of other writer friends when I lived in the city. And it's kind of a rock writer nerd bar and great jukebox and just awesome. And I had a a couple different ideas for how this book would come to be. And I was obsessed with Nick Kent's The Dark Stuff at the time, this sort of collection of rewritten magazine pieces (laughs) that he did. That's every writer's fantasy in some ways to like publish your pieces the way that you originally wanted. Even though I love my editors, there's always that element. So I was thinking about that. And I was thinking about the story that I've told before, but it's true is it was in 2011 in the spring. And I had been to see the strokes at Madison Square Garden. And I'd also seen the final LCD sound system show or allegedly final. And it was very clear that there was a bookend. I just saw it. I was like 2001, 2011. This is 10 years. Like this thing that we've all been living in is pretty exciting. And like, there's definitely something to write here. Like, is this a book? And what would that book look like? And so I I had been tinkering with a lot of different approaches. And it was Mark who was like, you should do a please kill me style oral history. And you should call it meet me in the bathroom. The struggle was you can't tell this in a linear way. This is what oral history is for. Yeah, The oral history format seemed like the obvious solve for the problem of how to tell this story, right? Because it's not really about what happened. It's about how it felt to be there. And you need those interlocking, like disagreeing narratives to create a cohesive sense of the emotional reality of the time rather than, and the factual reality, but from different perspectives. And so we were talking about Edie by Gene Stein and like a bunch of classic oral histories. And obviously, Please Kill Me was a total Bible for me and everybody who came to New York. So that was kind of under my arm when I moved to New York. And it was Mark was like, you should do that. You should do Please Kill Me for this world. And he said, you should call it Meet Me in the Bathroom. Thanks, Julian, you know, first of all, obviously, for writing the song and for coming up with that expression. As soon as Mark said that, I was like, oh. 
And we both laughed because the joke is always once you have the title, you're basically there. You just have to like quickly write the book. So that problem was solved the title. But I think it conjures the feeling of the time. Like it's about drugs. It's about sex. It's about all the obvious things. But it's also this sense of kind of invitation and invocation Mm -hmm. colliding. And that's really what it felt like. It felt like, come on in you know? Yeah. And what's going to happen behind this door? Like, I don't know. And you don't know either, but like, let's find out. So that just seemed right. Yeah. It's one of my favorite songs off of Room on Fire. I really love that song. And I think it is a great title for your book. And (laughs) it also harkens back to the blogs. They often name themselves after the title of a song from their favorite band. So kind of goes in that tradition. Yeah, totally. You mentioned in the book, that it was very Rashomon-esque at times, where people's recollections of events are sometimes contradictory. One part that I thought was really funny was whether or not Karen O pushed Courtney Love at a show. I love both of them. And so that's why this just like was one of the standout little tidbits of information that I just absolutely (laughs) couldn't stop obsessing over. What is your interpretation of this event? Did it happen? Will we ever know? (laughs) We will never know. I mean, we should ask Courtney. I did try to talk to Courtney for the book, but it can be difficult to track her down, or at least it was for me. But I don't know. Whenever there's a Rashomani moment, you're never going to know the truth. Even if you ask Courtney, you'll still never know the truth, right? Like you'll know her side of things, but you won't know really what happened. I think the fun is in the fact that of course it could have, and that that's how it's remembered. The whole point of Rashomon is that you can have, you know, five people in a room participating in exactly the same experience. And then if you interview them all separately, even right after you will get different stories. Yeah. Obviously in Meet Me in the Bathroom, this was a big theme. Like what I believe is that somewhere in the kind of collective recollection is a sense of, again, the feeling of the time, which is what I wanted to get at rather than, all right, did Courtney push Karen or did Karen push Courtney or, you know, who threw the craft services food first or whatever. The other thing I'll just say about that is that if you knew Karen and Christian Joy during this time, you mentioned earlier, like some of the ways in which Karen is pretty revolutionary and there are a lot of them, but one is just, and I don't, I think this doesn't get said enough. Christian is such a significant part of Karen's expression because she's designed all these costumes for her since the beginning. And Christian talks about how some of the dresses she made for Karen were so ugly that they like hurt to look at and that Karen would wear them anyway. And, you know, it's not that she would wear them anyway. It's like, that's part of it. It's she wore them because of that. It's a sense of the wider lens through which we look at beauty, which is what rock and roll is supposed to be about. And, you know, we now live in this hyper Instagrammed world and we didn't then in the same way. And there was a freedom to that. And Karen, who's an incredibly beautiful woman, but also she was willing to let herself look sweaty and like just totally raw. Unhinged. Unhinged, totally, absolutely. On stage and encouraged and moved towards that. And as you've said for yourself, and I mean, I'm her contemporary, but this is definitely true for me. It was so inspiring to see that. It was so cool. And so this is all to say like, The wildest possible thing that Karen said she did, I definitely believe it. Like, I 100% believe it. Whatever it is, I'm sure it happened. (laughs) And obviously, Courtney Love is a pretty good representative for that kind of energy, too. So we'll never know, but I believe it. It's also funny the way that the dialogue kind of like follows because Karen O says, I never pushed her. And then I think one of her bandmates follows up and they're like, she pushed her. Yeah, she totally <laughs> it's just, pushed It's just her, hilarious. Right? <laughs> I just love that. And you've mentioned before that there was kind of this like Interpol and the Strokes and then you kind of had Hoobastank and Limp Bizkit. I was of the internet and Kaza and LimeWire and really I didn't have a specific genre that I adhered to. I felt that maybe people didn't feel as much as they had to stick to one genre or feel too tied to just one kind of sonic expression of themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's Mark Ronson who talks about this in the book about DJing maybe Seven Nation Army or fell in love with a girl or Mark, if he's listening to this, will be annoyed that I can't remember which one in a nice way. But there was a time when DJing like a rock song in the midst of like a hip hop set was just unheard of. It's like, you don't do that. Like we don't play those things together. Mm -hmm. And we were speaking earlier about the idea of, I can't remember why you were saying this or what context we were talking about this in, but just the idea of like bands playing 
what they wanted to hear. And one thing we haven't talked about, but it's a big key to this scene and is very much discussed in the book is the kind of parallel role that all these parties had to the role of bloggers. So like Tizwas or misshapes or certainly motherfucker at the beginning of things like DJs like Justine D and Nick Mark. And I mean, even Sway, Morrissey Knight at Sway, like going to these clubs and going to these specific parties where you would hear everything. Yeah. You would hear new wave and oh my God, I'm jumping all over. I'm thinking of that party at bar 13 shout. And Karen talks about like going to shout and having like six margaritas and like practicing her persona or unleashing her. It's not a practice. It's like just finding her persona, her stage persona emerging and shout played like all this sort of like garage rock stuff. Mm -hmm. In some ways, these are like highly stylized parties where it's like, there are these kind of themes, but the theme is essentially, I mean, what they all had in common was a sense of make your own rules and then follow them for fun. There aren't really these constraints around like a hip hop set looks like this and a rock set looks like that. Like rock music can be danced to and you can play the Supremes and Jay-Z and New Order in the same breath. Like you can do that. It's okay. Like the guys you were talking about who work at the record store are not actually powerful. They're not actually going to come here and like off with your head. So I think one of the things that happened during this time, this is something we're trying to explore in the show too, is that in the indie era, meaning like in the 80s and 90s, the rise of kind of indie labels and indie culture, there really was this huge break between people even five or six years older than me and my immediate generation. Like we did not have those rules. I did not understand that I wasn't allowed to like Madonna and Janet Jackson and King Crimson or something really like rock boy that they would love to talk about. And those things all seemed like if you like it, you like it. And they're related. The thing that I love that I feel in myself when I'm playing this music, it's all part of the same story. So like, who cares where it comes from? There's a whole part of the book that's about sort of the disappearing concept of selling out. I mean, that used to be a big fucking deal. Like people really cared. I think it's Juan, actually, we were speaking about him earlier, who talks about getting beaten up for wearing Converse in Boston in the 90s. I mean, these symbols, the sort of semiotics of your outsider-ness were really important because there were these incredibly firmly held boundaries between mainstream culture and whatever else, underground culture, indie culture, and for a variety of reasons, some of which are trackable and some of which are not. By the time I showed up in New York, it had disappeared somehow. Like older people would be like worried about these things. And it was sort of seemed just kind of to us, it seemed a little quaint. Mm -hmm. This makes me sound like a real brat, which is correct. I was a real brat, so it's totally fine. But yeah, that notion of the rules of music and how to like what you like and what you're not allowed to like, like all of that really did start to kind of topple during this period of time. And I think that's a really good thing. You know, not everything about the dawn of the internet has been great for music, obviously, but this part is to me. Yeah, those parties did have so much impact on how things kind of unfolded. When you were attending those parties, did you think these kind of parties would be going on in the future? Or did you predict that eventually? Obviously, parties are still happening in New York, but I don't know if they are to this level. Did you know at the time that you were kind of experiencing this new territory in (laughs) regards to partying, I guess is the best way to put it. Whether it's going on now or not, I don't know. It doesn't seem like it. Certainly not in a way where everyone's watching. Like what I kind of try and remind myself is that, you know, speaking earlier about how it felt like a very small world to us. And then at a certain point, you realized that other people cared. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember when this guy in college who was kind of a dick, honestly, but was English. And so he had been reading the enemy. So he knew about the strokes earlier than everybody else in America. And he was like, Hey, have you guys heard about this band? We're going to their show. I'm bringing it. It's really cool. They're like a cool English band. I was like, Nick's band? Are you kidding? I mean, yeah, I'm going to that show. But like, first of all, they're not English. And second of all, like, what? So that sense of the privacy of it, like your favorite band becoming somehow your generation's favorite band or something. I mean, that's a little dramatic, but in some ways not. That is not happening in the same way right now. It's it's also yeah. like music culture has become much more diffuse. There aren't these sort of, at least right now, there isn't the same sense of a sort of cohesive scene that everyone's watching in a certain way. There are big artists and there are orbits that people care about, but it's not, it's just not happening right now. I'm thinking about this. This is a little pretentious, but there's a Kierkegaard quote that's like, life has to be lived forward, but can only be understood backwards. Mm. 
you do not understand what you're living through as you're living through it. And that tension between the sort of heady in the moment experience of being alive during this time and the like living nostalgia for it as it's happening, which we definitely felt because of all the anxiety that I was talking about before. Karen has talked about this. A lot of people have talked about this. You kind of knew it's like, this is kind of magical, right? Mm -hmm. You kind of knew but you have this sense, at least I did, that you were going to be thinking about these years for a long time, but you also didn't really know what to do about that. Should I be doing it differently? Like, should I be, you know, what does that mean? Like, what do I do with this information since you can't really understand it from here? And I think that anxiety, now I'm repeating myself, but is part of what I'm most interested in capturing both in this book and, and in other projects that I'm now working on that are around this same time. Yeah, people were partying for their lives, it sounds like. Yeah. In, in a lot of these books and stories that are documenting this time. What was it like working on your documentary and seeing your book come to life on the screen? Yes. So the documentary, which was made by Pulse Films, is awesome. And it was really strange and gratifying to see the depths of archive that they were able to locate. Because when I wrote Meet Me in the Bathroom, I didn't have a photo researcher. It was really just me. And the photos that are in the book are great. But that was me like going to Nick Zinner's house and being like, please, please, like, can I just see something? And being like, Ugh, this is that day I have to talk to Lizzie about photos for this book she's writing. I mean, it was very like me just kind of begging people that I knew or could get to for material that would sort of bring somewhat to visual life some of the faces that you would be reading recollections from. So to get to see the result of what a doc team who spends years combing the world for like shit from under people's beds that nobody's ever seen. And there's incredible footage from the archives of many of the bands. And that was so cool. And the effect that Meet Me in the Bathroom has had on some readers and on people who are around for that time, like is not an effect that I get to experience, right? Like I made it. Mm -hmm. So I don't have that sense of, oh my God, this is like, I don't have the feelings around it that I'm really grateful to say some people have had. And that's and that's fine. That's as it should be. But the doc gave me some of that. It was like, oh, because it's not mine, really. It's theirs. They made it. These filmmakers made it. Will and Dylan. And like I had, you know, input, but it's not my creative vision. It's their creative vision. And that was kind of cool. It gave me space to have feelings about the story that I can't have from like reading my own book, obviously. Yeah. And then the other thing I would say is like, meet me in the bathroom all the people who were interviewed for it, a lot of the main characters are either people that I actually knew or that I came to know through being a journalist during that time. And some of them are my real friends. Yeah. It was scary to put it out, you know, like what if everyone hates me? And it was very personal and also this like huge journalistic endeavor and balancing that had its moments of difficulty and I'm proud of the results and I stand by the project as it came out like completely and Paul Banks and Kerno and James Murphy I mean these are people I mean I knew Paul pretty well Paul's a good friend of mine and Karen and I knew each other a little bit but I had never met James Murphy until I interviewed him for this project and the way that people like rallied around the project and supported it and understood what I was trying to do and that it was supposed to be like a work of love and a sense of creating a container around this like miraculous thing that we all got to live through that, as I just said, we couldn't really see in the moment and like trying to build a place for that to live forever. People got that. And some of the key people got that. And I, the cool thing about the documentary was being able to share that, you know, like while the book was being reported, nobody knew that anyone would care. And when people did care, and then we go make this documentary, it's like, well, now you know. So the Yayas and James's LCD sound system and Interpol and the Strokes to some extent too, that there was a sense of being able to include them in the process of, like I said, like gathering archive and like asking them for stuff. Like it was really exciting to be able to see them get their hands into this too. Because even though that would never have worked for the book. Like you got to just go do it yourself. And that's what journalism is. It also was like really nice to see that become a part of other people's experience too. And not just something that I carried because it shouldn't be like, it's a story that really belongs to a lot of people. I'm so excited to see the documentary. When will it be available to the public for either streaming or in theaters? Soon, soon, soon. And I will put it on my Instagram and 
I can send it to you and you can put it on your Instagram or whatever, but Perfect. it's coming out. It's awesome. I'm really excited for everyone to see it. And if you're a fan of this book, your mind will be blown by what you just, the footage is mind blowing. And the film is great. It's really exciting to imagine that this is going to get shared. So stay tuned, I guess. <laughs> like stay tuned a little longer. Yeah. I can't wait to see the doc and I can't wait to see the eventual TV series oh, that comes out of this crossed. as well. I mean, I think, in my opinion, I would guarantee that this will happen because, you know, there's so many people who are interested in your book. There's so many people who are interested in this period of time within music and culture. So super excited to see how that unfolds. Well, that's great. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you again so much for coming on the podcast. It was really great speaking to you. And for listeners out there, you can find Lizzie Goodman's book on any of your local bookstores and make sure to follow her on Instagram and stay tuned for the release of her doc. And hopefully that eventual TV series as well. Thanks again, Lizzie. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. See you later. See you later. See you later.